Justin, what's it like working with middle schoolers? Absolutely hilarious because you don't know what to expect and everything that comes out is just so right from their mouth. It's just so funny. There was this kid, like, there, I'm not going to say names, obviously. That's a good thing. But Savannah gave style. her, yeah, Savannah gave her negative case on the resolution about the um, coronavirus shutdown. So she's ar- making the argument that that's the, the, that's the September Coolidge Foundation Septu- resolution. And the Coolidge Cup, yep. So yep, the yep, same, same resolution one. where Savannah is making the argument that the economic shutdown due to coronavirus was not worth it, specifically in her second contention because when we shut down schools, it's harder to catch cases of parental abuse because teachers don't notice things like bruises or lacerations or anything that would indicate that a, a child is being abused. And now the child is kind of just closed in with potentially abusive parents. Plausible argument. Right. I think it, it's looking at the, the changes in society and we're kind of less interconnected in right. culture Privacy. and all these things, community, yeah. all these things. And then, well, this middle school debater wanted to make the, he, it was, we were cross-examining and then he raises his hands. He's like, well, I wasn't abused during the pandemic by my parents, so therefore, and then tried to use the personal or personal anecdote to disprove her point, and all of us just we, we really lost track of that. We were we were all celebrating the fact that our kid wasn't abused. Well, that is a wonderful thing to celebrate, yeah. and you really never know what kids will say. What's that? What's that YouTube channel that you showed me where it's like some good news? We yes. should put that on some good news. It's like, oh, well, breaking news, kid from Thales Rollsville was not abused during the coronavirus pandemic. Well, you know what happened with that TV show, or that YouTube what? show? Uh, so John Krasinski sold it to a, a major network, pocketed several million dollars, and angered almost all of his fans. Oh, well, we'll have to put it, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to put it somewhere else. We've got it on our show. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. My name is Ethan Delves. And we are here to uh, carry on the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Today, we are looking at the first public forum resolution that's going to be active for all NSDA-connected tournaments in the months of September and October. Ethan, what's the res? The resolution is the United States federal government should enact the Medicare for All Act of 2019. I thought we were done with Bernie. I mean, well, that's the thing is when Coolidge is so separated from the rest of the debate leagues, you're going to get repetition in the topics at some point. Well, I know. The last one we did, we debated the Medicare for All like a year ago or universal health care or something very similar. But it wasn't specifically Bernie, and I had forgotten that this was Bernie Sanders' bill. Like mm-hmm. I went and looked at it this morning. Bernie Sanders introduced this in the Senate, and a representative from the state of Washington, I am probably going to butcher this name because I didn't really look it up, but I'm going to go with Pramila Jayapal, introduced it in, in Congress, and this is literally Bernie Sanders' socialized, single-payer Medicare for All. Well, I guess we're not done with the topic, and we probably won't be done with it for a little while longer, too, because this is just going to come up in some form or another in the well, future. Well, it's, it's an election year, and I'm, I'm sure, as far as I know, Biden does not have a stance on this, but I'm Medicare sure Medicare for will. those who want it, I think, the median sort of perspective, which I really <laughs> want to talk about on, on the show today as well. Oh, And okay. Pete Buttigieg was also polling for that as well. Medicare for those who want Medicare it? Medicare for those tell, who tell want Tell me it. more. I don't know much about so this. So think about the different extremes. There's, right now, I guess, in the the status quo you have state programs that you can sign up for if you meet certain criteria you have private health insurance whether it's employer sponsored or hopefully not paid for out of pocket and then the medicare for all alternative so bernie's huge point on his campaign was that he's he's pulling for medicare for all because you know healthcare is a human right is one of the things he would say a lot and it should be guaranteed to everyone with no copay and all this stuff and 
Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden are not willing to go as radical as Bernie is because a lot of their supporters are more centrist and you'll, you'll find that Bernie gets a lot of younger supporters that believe in this type of thing, but Biden wants to appeal to masses. Buttigieg wanted to appeal, appeal to more people. And they see this as a more viable alternative as well. And the alternative is Medicare for those who want it. So it's a government program that you can sign up for if you want the health care. But if you want to keep your private insurance plan, you're still able to do that. Did you look at anything that looked at the fiscal solvency of the uh, Medicare for some? Idea. No, no, not okay. the. But my I, my main idea for that is not. I wasn't actually. If I were to bring this up in a debate round, it wouldn't be a solvency issue that I would begin with. I don't think. I think I would start with the fact that it. That's a really rare, or, or the fact that this is a really rare type of government idea. I guess you could say warrants looking into it a little bit closer because with current government programs, you have programs for those who need it, like food stamps, like social security. You have government programs for those who have earned it, like pensions, you know, military pensions. My uh, cousin was like head of this, one of the sanitation departments in New York. Now he gets a pension for working for the city for so long. He was like 30 something years. But a government program for those who want it is a whole entire different category. And how do you justify using taxpayer dollars from those who don't want to participate in a program for something that's optional, that you can opt in or out of because you want it, not because you need it or you've earned it? So that's just the, the sheer fact that that type of approach is so nuanced and so unique raises a lot of questions in my head because I can't think of anything that's currently in place that compares so we can look for some historical precedents there. Yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. And in part, I think it, uh, I said solvency, and I think it does solve, it could solve the, the, if the harm is people not having access to Medicare and now they, those who want it have access, that could solve the existing harm. I think I, I, what I actually had in mind was funding uh, mm-hmm. rather than solvency because the, the, the insurance game is really a matter of having more people paying into the system than are withdrawing from the system. So I don't know how, like the one, at least the logic of the Medicare for All system does balance financially. The math never works out. I think we saw that point over and over in all the Democratic primary Oh, yeah, Pete Buttigieg pushed Bernie on that so hard. He did. Like, I remember and, and everyone where, really did. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. He literally was like, so where's, where's the money coming from and how does the math work? And Bernie just insisted that these billions of dollars would, would all work the out. billionaires. Somehow. That's where it's coming from. <laughs> That's right. And when, once Bernie became a millionaire, it became billionaires is where the money's going to come from, not the millionaires. That's, no, no, no. Not the, not, the, not the Democratic Socialist who owns, I think at last count, six houses? Something like Four In houses? Vermont where property is like sky, sky high. high. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so... I was looking a little bit at Medicare for All, and uh, let me at least just uh, openly admit on the air, this is not anything I have any expertise on. Uh, I'm kind of drawing on general memories from a few months ago, and uh, I tried sincerely to read through this bill today. It is like the driest piece of legislation. Yeah, the Green New Deal was so much more exciting. Oh, man. Episode three. Remember? That that was it. We had a lot of fun with that one. There was just like, this is like... Every section had three or four sub-clauses that had exceptions or specifics worked out, and it was naming all of these different groups that I'm sure if someone were to go through a line-by-line analysis, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I had a lot of trouble figuring out what exactly it all meant. So this may be a pretty basic understanding that our listeners will, will know, uh, but I'm starting to kind of run through like a, a couple of general things that I noticed from what I did read from it. Uh, First is that Medicare for All is providing, is seeking to provide, the Medicare for All Act of 2019 is trying to provide exactly what it sounds like. We are talking about universal coverage, 
And that universal coverage is given to all residents, not just mm-hmm. citizens, which I think is key because that, that too is part of the general leftist party platform, that they really want to remove the distinction between residents and citizens. And I, I assume the argument there has some, goes something along the lines of, well, residents will come into the hospitals and by law they have to receive emergency care. So we're going to go ahead and insure them so that they will have uh, access and not be a drain on the system. Uh, but that, that would definitely place an interesting burden on states like California and Texas that have so many million uh, residents who are not citizens. Right. And that kind of shifts the focus of where are we trying to solve the problem? Because if you look at Medicare for All, we're trying to solve the problem by providing, or I guess in the dichotomy you sort of drew with people paying in versus people withdrawing from the system, we're trying to increase the pay rather than decrease the withdrawal. So I guess, and then on the other side of the spectrum, by keeping private health care, limiting state programs, we're trying to reduce the spending. So it's, it's just two different approaches on different sides of it to the exact same problem that we're all trying to solve. I think so. Uh, those we'll get into in a little bit, like wildly different ways of solving. That yes, wildly problem. different for sure. Uh, so, okay, so uh, now there, I did find one interesting line uh, where the bill does state, in regulating eligibility, the secretary shall ensure that individuals are not allowed to travel to the United States for the sole purpose of obtaining health care items and services provided under the program established under this act. So we're not going to have what's called medical tourism. That's not okay, according to the act. You can't travel to the U.S. just to take advantage of this new health care system. Uh, but then this will also be established by universal Medicare cards. So everyone will have a universal Medicare card. Uh, so in addition to your whatever the new driver's license thing, the, the star. Oh, the, the gold star. The gold yeah, star. like the federal sort of like identification yep. mark. Yeah, I have uh, that on mine. I, I haven't program. gotten mine yet. I have to get that updated by next year if I ever want to if I want to fly anywhere. Uh, but uh, those will not be used the social security network or social security numbers. So that would be a new level of national bureaucratic identification, which is going to pose additional problems on implementation. Uh, we have we already have enough problems with social security fraud. There could be interesting avenues on the neg about okay, first off, how big of a bureaucracy does it take to run this thing, this new system, and how much does that detract from any potential savings? But then also, what happens with fraud under the system, and what does that look like? One thing that's so interesting about this resolution is how policy it is. And we say it about every public forum resolution, but to compare it to another one, like the UBI from Harvard in, in January, February, before the pandemic hit, we, like, we called that policy-esque. Well, We're talking about a specific <laughs> bill. bill, and which means that now we open up the opportunity for the affirmative to stand for specific points on the bill that are that they, I guess, could say would guarantee benefit to some group or all the whole group, hopefully. But that also leaves a lot of room for negative to not be able to get accused of being hyper specific because they can pick out any individual one of those subpoints and lines that they want from that from this specific bill, and the affirmative can't come back and say you're being extra topical what's it called it's no extra topical is the opposite it's being like too too uh, specific like i don't I'm know kinda, I'm, I'm blanking on that help word. us on the jargon like i know i know people who know the jargon listen yeah. to this show help us out what's it called when something is too is too hyper specific what does the other team accuse 
the original team of like what offense is that called? I like, guess. Uh, it's almost like a too narrow of an interpretation. Too narrow of an interpretation. Yeah, there's like an OSPEC something word something for like something that. in poli- that's a policy word is where it comes from too. Right. We're arguing for a specific act. So that means But it is a pretty long bill too. I mean, so I think I uh, mean, but when you compare it to other public forum resolutions like the one me and Megan did about the law of the sea which was like 300 pages, right? This is a lot less to work with. That's true. We are talking about this is about 30 pages pen and printed out as a PDF. Uh, now that's that's I hadn't thought about it that way, but and that honestly means that maybe I don't know if any congressional debaters listen to the show, but some of the tools that congressional debate pulls on might be helpful here because I can't tell you how many bills I've heard failed because somebody went through the language of the bill and found an internal contradiction, mm. and in which case at the point where you have a we're talking about a piece of national legislation that would literally rewrite the the healthcare status quo an internal contradiction means that the whole thing even if 90% of it is good that 10% that's bad means we should fail the bill yeah and we're this is going to be a very sort of policy argued resolution when it comes down to it because affirmative is going to have to stand for those specifics and negative is incentivized to attack those specifics so there's going to be what's it, it's not Voting issues. What, what's it called in policy? Where it's the the, the stock issue. Yeah, stock, stock, yeah, stock issues. Yeah. That's right. Not voting issues. Uh, that's in. That's at the end of an LDC now, thing. Or whatever. Before, and policy. Before we go too heavy on encouraging people to take treat this like policy, do keep in mind that it is in the literal rules of public forum that you cannot have a plan. You cannot bring up the language of stock issues. Now that doesn't mean you can't run a. You can't run your case through that. At least from what I've been looking at in the last couple of weeks, the stock issues are really a widely adopted way of setting up a case. Right. And if you want to use that, just make sure you cover your bases and don't use the terminology. Yeah, if you, if you just don't say solvency and you says this, say this costs too much, you're fine. Right, like, or does this will. actually fix the problem that we're talking about Exactly. Today? When you use language of advantage and disadvantage and harms and topicality, uh, you, you start losing some of the public part of public forum debate. Yeah, and it, this also luckily seems like a resolution. So in it's a like policy in that way, but it's kind of unlike policy because I don't really see too much opportunity for off-case debate. But well, you, it, it would you be don't really, really have room. I don't know where you have room in a public for form calling structure. topicality. I think being extra topical. Someone could say we should implement Medicare for all with these specific extensions mm. to make it better. So, like they're mm. adding things onto the end of a bill or something. Maybe if someone wanted to take that angle, they could get accused of that. But it seems like this is going to be the type of debate that's oriented on case and it's going to take a sort of policy leaning and Probably. people will lean into that and hopefully try not to use the terminology so that, so as not to get knocked by the judge. I think that's probably fair. Uh, one key term that I found as I was reading up on this today was single payer. And just in case any of our listeners are unclear with how that works, currently we have in the status quo a healthcare market that has multiple payers. Uh, there's a it's a combination of third party insurance providers, uh, sometimes businesses that have some kind of benefits arrangement with a hospital, and then the individual, and sometimes the government. All of those create a market with literally hundreds of different actors paying into the system. All of that would be gone under this bill, where now we have a single payer, and that single payer is the United States federal government. Ethan, do you see any perks for a single payer system? I do, because, and specifically for the reason that the single payer is the government, because this is a case of the government interacting with a, another party, being hospitals and insurance companies that need to be, that run for profit. And sometimes the incentives to get those profits are not aligned with 
the care of the individual in some cases. In a lot of cases, when people can't get the coverage they need, the high rates, and you need to meet you know, a $1,000 deductible before you can even get the insurance company to help you out. What happens when you make it a single payer? It's kind of like the opposite. This was a great thing that the Coolidge Brief laid out too, which I think it might still be out if people wanted to reference it from the website. I'm not sure, but it would be. it's a great place to look for really in-depth terminology. I'm talking like the type A healthcare, type B healthcare, type C, type D, because Jer- Jared Rhodes, it knows tons about health policy because he works with the master's program at Dartmouth. So he helped put that together. It's a wonderful resource where they specifically talked about the counterpart to a monopoly, which is a monopsony. In a monopoly, you have business, one business or one corporation that has headship over an entire industry, like you know Carnegie's steel or something, you know, and Rockefeller's oil, things like that. And we've outlawed that. So we try, we try to like, you know, not let that happen. When it comes to a single payer system, you can look at the advantages from the other standpoint. If you have one buyer, that buyer sets the terms, period. That's it. And especially if the buyer is the government. So if you're dealing with third parties like healthcare, healthcare organizations, drug companies, especially, and hospitals, if the government says that it wants to pay a certain price for healthcare, the government's paying that price for healthcare. And all of those third parties can't do anything about it. So it per, I, one of the best examples, or I guess arguments that I can see on face value that we were sort of talking about a couple months ago when we had to debate this, was specifically related to getting affordable drugs for like insulin and things of that nature for customers or people or patients that need it. Because if you allow that type of negotiation to occur when people's lives are on the line, and profit is the goal, you're, you're getting into murky waters. But if the government is the one setting the price, whether it's legally or just, hey, we're paying this price and you're not getting anything out of us if you don't accept this price, then drug companies will probably be forced to bring down their prices to what the government says it needs to be. And then customers can get it at a lower rate. Or if it's Medicare for all, we're all paying taxes into the system and getting it quote unquote for free instead of having to pay a massive premium for some drug that the company could produce more of but doesn't because they're the only ones with access to the drug. I think that's, the, that's, the, that's a huge argument on, on the pro side of this. Uh, though I think it, has, it, it ignores, like most of the arguments that the democratic socialist positions can access, it ignores a lot of what really happens when such ideas are put into practice. I'm thinking of two counterexamples. Um, the first is uh, higher education and the idea of having the U.S. federal government subsidize the cost of higher education right. to make it more affordable for more people. I think we talked about this on the show before. Uh, what, what actually happened once universities realized that the federal government can literally just print money to pay its bills. So there is a liter- there's literally a blank check to that, that uh, and, and colleges don't have to negotiate directly with the government, they can tell students to borrow money from the government to pay their bills, which is a little more complex than the single-payer system we're describing here. But I think it, it's a germane example because you still have the federal government as the ultimate source of funding. What happened was that the cost of college went up uh, something over 300% very quickly. Is that because of coronavirus? That no, no, no. That's probably more. If, or, no, 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 maybe less because We're talking over a much wider or... time scale. Okay. Then. That's like from... Uh, it's weird the, how we have to justify things in like pre-corona, post-corona. Oh, because I'm going just, way back, man. I'm going back to 1945. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Like circa 1945, you have the cost of college is something like it is a... Uh, but let's go. Let's go to a little even early, different example. Uh, my dad went to college when my dad was in college in the late seventies, early eighties. 
uh, college tuition for him at an in-state private college, Sanford University, was about $6,000 a year. It's what he could earn in a, working full-time as across summers and then part-time during the school year. Uh, whereas today, uh, colleges run between twenty dollars to $80,000, depending on status. Well, part of the massive increase there is not just inflation, but also the fact that the U.S. federal government is subsidizing the cost. So there's no incentive for colleges to keep their own costs down. And so what I would argue is that, yeah, it sounds great if the U.S. federal government actually does subsidize or does control the prices. In reality, when that happens, it actually it never works. What happens is that um, the government will end up paying what hospitals demand or what drug companies demand because what politician is going to be on the hook for 10,000 diabetics dying because they refuse to let – because companies can't produce insulin at the permitted rate? No politician is going to do that. Instead, they're going to do the opposite. They're going to be like, they're okay, we're just going to pay. And at which point that communicates to a company, ah – you paid one thousand. I bet you might pay fifteen hundred a shot. And now they're just gonna uh, they're gonna up that. But you could legislate around that, I'm sure, and put caps on what they could charge. And if you if you have the legislation to back you up, then you could save money. Now that way. we're talking here about now. This may be a difference between the debate world and can I make this argument? You could make that argument. In the real world, that will never work. In the real world, that's what's called price fixing. It's been tried countless times with countless different life, uh, necessary for life substances, uh, primarily bread in the 18th century, and it doesn't work. Because like, what it does, they, all of this is, the, the position you were representing a moment ago at least, is ignoring the way the free market actually does work. Where we have a mass amount of private enterprises that through no clear plan or structure produce a product that is available at a price point for consumers. And then consumers meet the price point and purchase it and this all sort of works. And there's this idea that if we could all sort of centrally manage this, we could accomplish the same thing at a much lower price point. That's really not the case, because once you put a specific structure on top of it, suddenly it makes it destroys the efficiency of the free market. I'm thinking, and yeah, that point of that analogy to colleges was really good too. The only point against that that I could come up with, like in a minor thing, is that a lot of the prices colleges advertise their sticker prices, and you'll end up paying a lot. But like UNC Chapel Hill, which is where I'm, I'm one of the colleges I'm considering applying to, meets 100 percent of. It of aid that um, FAFSA dictates you should pay. So, and for some people that might be like near nothing, but it, it just, a, like, I guess that's the only thing I can think of. For a lot of people really... that is going to be near nothing. Right. Like... So like, that's a great example and a good analogy. And the only sort of, I'm a lot of, I guess my mindset around trying to piece things together when it comes to stuff like this is looking at the differentiating factor. So what makes you know Medicare for all different than the current government programs? And that's where I kind of came up with the, well, there's ones where people need it, the ones where mm -hmm. they've earned it, and the ones where they want it. And I'm sure there's more categories in there as well. It seems pretty extensive. But it's, and you just brought up two things like, um, or essential, or life essential things like bread, and for example. It seems like it couldn't work with, or this type of program, this type of democratic socialist approach that we're considering couldn't work for stuff like that. But if we're, if we're considering the commodity, which is a terrible word to put on this right now, at play, governments have heavy regulations on things like water, things like energy, 
and subsidizing energy industries and, and you know, making it so that people have as much access to the grid as possible. If, and even if you took an, a more environmental approach to it, air pollution, what, what's to say we can't achieve something similar or go for something similar when people's lives are directly at stake with the healthcare system? I think I'm trying, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So I guess, that the, I guess the main suggestion, it's, it's barely a point, it's more of like a suggestion I'm trying to make, is if the government takes, because there are some things that, and this is a very traditional sort of argument too, not like traditional in that sense, but like a timeless argument, I guess you could say, is that there are some things that should be free market and then some things that we need to put a stop on, like monopolies, for example. And because when you let the free market go a little bit too far, you end up with monopolies like one guy has access to all the oil, one guy has access to all sure. the steel. So what happens when we make it so that there's many people or many entities involved in the healthcare system, but it's not one guy has access to all of it, it's one payer has, gives access to everybody else? So two things there. First, I want to back up to the nature of the free market. Uh, Friedrich Hayek argued, I think... He at least gives my, gave my favorite example of what the free market should look like, and that's the free market. Uh, we tend to think of the free market almost in the, uh, the old French phrase, laissez-faire, let's let it be. Let anyone do whatever he wants, and it's fine. That's not really a free market, because in that kind of laissez-faire environment, you're really at a state of nature with whoever has the biggest economic stick. Mm-hmm. And that's, that doesn't create justice for the masses either. Uh, Hayek argued uh, in the aftermath of World War II as a member of the Austrian School of Economics that the free market done right uh, does have a role for a strong government presence. And the government's presence is more like a referee at a soccer match. The soccer match has clearly understood rules. Both sides understand the rules. Both sides understand the penalties for violating the rules. Everybody understands the game, and everybody tries to cheat a little bit. I'm, I'm sure you've seen one of those very physical soccer matches with lazy referees. Oh, and yeah, like, and where people are, like, pretending they got more hurt than they actually did. Right, yeah. and everybody's pushing for those pity points. And, and the red just, cards and all this stuff. Just like, please, ref, throw a yellow card in this mix somewhere. Well, the, the government should operate like that, where it's, it's enforcing the rules so that create fair competition. But where Hayek and the Austrian school at least maintains uh, is key, uh, is that really competition is the engine that drives prices down for the consumer. And what I'm very nervous about with this Medicare for All Act is that it destroys competition. And so where you're seeing that lack of competition as creating stream, a streamlined, single-payer system that's going to reduce price, what I see is that instead you have the government, and let's not even get into the question of who exactly is the government. In this case, it is the Secretary of Health is the one who is managing all of this. So we're actually handing the entirety, entire authority of the healthcare system, instead of it being this massive complex of local, regional, and national organizations that all sort of function kind of together, not terribly efficiently, but it works. We're handing all of that over to basically a dictator over the healthcare system. Right, and if you're looking for the concept of inelastic demand, because the what you're talking about is a scenario, the free market, typical free market scenario is centered around the concept of supply and demand. And when there's higher supply, then it's the cheaper prices because the demand is, if the demand stays the same or higher demand, supply stays the same, the prices are going to go up because whoever has the highest bidder. But there are several products and several instances where demand for a product doesn't change because it's a necessity. Things like water, 
have relatively, and inelastic demand is never a perfect vertical line on the supply and demand curve, but the steeper that line gets, you can actually look up graphs of this too, the more that dynamic sort of fails to hold and that free market idea fails to hold. You can look at things like water, even more necessary things like insulin, where it's like, if I don't get this, I or someone I care about is going to die. Those same economic concepts don't apply in a world, not in a world, but in instances where inelastic demand doesn't exist, or inelastic demand does exist. And I think there's a really strong argument to be made for the pro side here, where in instances where you have inelastic demand, you need that referee to play a little bit stronger of a role. And so strong, perhaps, to go to the Medicare for All Act of 2019. Now, I I think I can see that if we are talking about legitimately life-preserving operations and medication. I can see the inelastic demand there. Where I have trouble with that argument, and and we should probably start wrapping this up here in in a moment with some suggestions on pro and con here in a second. Right, some straightforward. Exactly. Yeah, because we we, we we, we, We've kind of gone afield there. And I've got to eat dinner. Right, that's important. Uh, But... Oh, I lost my train of thought. It's about to come back. Inelastic demand. Inelastic, right, right. The problem here is that what we're dealing with, we've got some parts of the medical health care, medical system that are clearly that inelastic demand. You keep going back to insulin. We could talk about cardiac arrest uh, treatment. We could talk about the emergency room and so on. But then you've got the whole set of the medical world that has kind of been on shutdown for the last three months where you've got elective surgeries, people choosing to come in for additional stuff, where you've got options between uh, generic medication or name brand medication. And you've got all kinds of choices in there where there is a supply and demand as well. So we've got a complicated situation. Here's, here's what we need. We need a plan-inclusive counterplan where the goal is not Medicare for all. It's some aspects of Medicare for all. If you keep bringing all. up policy into every episode, I don't know anything going about to policy. make you do policy don't, debate at something. I know nothing about policy. I could not yeah, succeed in that realm. Uh, I'm an LD debater, but I do know that people like to run policy arguments in LD, so why don't we just have some aspects of Medicare for all and then some aspects where, hey, it's up to you. Well, the okay. residents. Let's, let's, let's shift to, I'm, I'm going to make three very quick arguments on pro. Now I want you to tell me if you see any harms or any problems in those arguments. Okay. Okay. So the first argument I would make on pro for this resolution is that it does streamline an incredibly complicated system. And that in that streamlining, we're going to increase efficiency, we're going to lower cost, and we are going to extend access. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to look at this in terms of the magnitude of the impact that I can, I can weigh in on this. Uh, secondly, the bill, and this would be a great place for a clear textual card, uh, the bill goes into a lot of detail about national services and standards that would be upheld, and uh, you could make a standard big government argument for increasing uh, level of care on a national scale to up to these certain national standards. And thirdly, then, I would probably drill down into the details of what groups currently lack access to Medicare and look at, that as, look at this bill as solving that existent harm in the status quo. Every resident gets care. And then that's going to give me access to all kinds of additional benefits as we map this out over time, as we have more residents with substantial long-term care, we see less extreme medical problems in society as a whole, and so we are healthier and have a growing economy overall because we no longer have systemic healthcare problems. I think there's a great argument to put two, specifically, or you could put all of us together in a really great case. It's like, okay, 
Medicare, Medicare is a, um, or healthcare is a right, not a privilege, a human right, not a privilege. Is it sort of your, not value, but like starting premise, framework. I guess you could say. Framework, yeah, exactly. And the goal is to provide it to every resident. There's a, such a strong, like, logist, like, logos and pathos argument to be made there, I feel like. Because if we, if we make it so that every, that's like a huge point, I don't know, it just sounds great on affirmative, say, hey, like, everyone should get this. How do you disagree with that in cross-examination? Especially if you have a statistic with, like, this many people are turned away for these types of operations just because they're not U.S. citizens. Like, it's really difficult to kind of look good coming back on that, but even more so if you can prove that streamlining the process and making the process so much more efficient, maybe making it more streamlined would integrate new technology that we're working on in data and open source data sharing is a huge emerging technology so that we can end up saving enough money to pay for those new patients. It's a, it may be a hard case to make, but I, I actually saw Shiel do something like that for this resolution for Coolidge. He did a great job with it too. There is a really effective argument to be made there. Don't lose track of the, um, the fact that it says residents and U.S. citizens. I doubt anyone will because that's such a great affirmative point. And have fun with the specifics on this one because, like, the fact that it's about a specific bill, like, you can't pass up that opportunity. That's just great. Like, we're not arguing. I, take the big government approach for a framework by all means, but that's just exciting. Like, now you get to go line by line. It's like, no, you messed this up. Lose. Like, judge, don't, fo- don't vote for them. All right, I'm going to do the same thing on con so that we can uh, be on track with uh, getting you home for dinner in time. Uh, I've got five arguments on con. I'm inventing one based on what you just said. Uh, if, if I'm on con and I'm going second and someone does go the every resident route, I'm actually going to double down on citizenship and I'm going to focus on the quid pro quo nature of this, that the ones who pay into the system need to be the ones who benefit from the system. And so that's going to – so since the citizens are the ones who are paying taxes on this – then the citizens are the ones for whom the system is intended. Then you're arguing against like every government program ever. Yup. Mr. Herring, that's not unique. Oh, I'm going to go hardcore and actually uh, say that citizenship, membership in the nation matters. Membership in the body politic matters. And you don't just get to be here and get to take advantage of all of our social programmings, especially if I'm on con on this argument. Yes, and that's a great, that's a great reaction to go so, to. The, uh, the, no, I'll grant you, the, the argument's not unique to this problem. It's the same thing with uh, education. Uh, Texas is a great place to look to for that because they have huge problems in their public schools because they have so many illegal residents who are over they're flooding their system. So there are schools, schools that are intended for students of 1,500 have 2,500 students and so on. You can imagine the logistical nightmare that that places. Now, with most quasi or full-on conservative arguments, you hear the facts versus heart in this mm-hmm. distinction. The, if you go make the citizenship argument, just be ready to stand your ground and uh, don't let your opponents like basically go bleeding hard liberal all over you because that is the, the immediate liberal response here is to say, but they're humans. And you need to basically be cold-hearted enough to say, that doesn't matter. We're talking about those who pay into the system need to be the one, are the ones who are entitled to benefit from the system. Or, I mean, you could be just as heartless and still make the argument that there are state programs in place for those who qualify for it and those who need it. And then there's that little gap in the middle of those who are missed, or big gap, if you want to, if you're able to make the argument. And then there's all the rich people that could pay for it. So it's like from a utilitarian calculus, we've got a pretty good status quo going for us. 
Argument number two on the con. Uh, every time Bernie Sanders pitched this at a pre uh, Democratic presidential nominee uh, debate this past year, he was nailed on the numbers. This thing is impossible to pay for, and there are countless uh, analyses all over the internet. You can find the cards for it that are looking at just how much the numbers don't add up. Uh, I would cross-apply this, or uh, yeah, there's there's my policy language. I would cross, cross apply the logic. Cross apply what I said earlier about uh, the complexity of the market with a great line from Adam Smith, where the free market moves as if it's governed by an invisible hand. No one can really see how it all fits together in such a way that you can plan it and you can organize it. There's an invisible hand guiding it all. Uh, as soon as we try to actually lock it all down, the whole thing evaporates. So if you're on con and it seems like Pro is doing a great job spinning this great dream, nail them on the numbers. Make them explain where the money is coming from to pay for this. Make them give you an actual number for how expensive this plan is because it is hugely, hugely expensive. Uh, argument number three. Uh, this does repeal the Hyde Amendment, which is a piece of legislation that maintains that the U.S. federal government does not pay directly for abortive contraception. That's, that's Hyde H-Y-D-E Amendment for anyone who wants to research. So what we are dealing with right now then, and I, I don't want to sidetrack our episode into a rant, so I'm going to try very hard not to, uh, but we are dealing with one of the most controversial pieces of life in the United States. Since 1973, how we handle abortions in this country is something that is just completely polarizing. So on con, you have all kinds of things you could do with, this, with that. You could look at just how much that will... That will mean this has no possibility of getting passed in a even partially split legislature. Because <laughs> that, that, that means that everybody on the uh, pro-life side will vote against this. Uh, there's all kinds of other things you could do with that. Uh, but this does require, this also requires all kinds of money going to something that, the VAT, that a, uh, about 50% of the country is opposed to, which is troubling on various fronts. Uh, okay. Uh, we've already talked about my third argument a little bit, that this requires citizens paying for non-citizen residents' health care. Uh, that, that is problematic in a, in a variety of ways. And lastly, this ignores the reality of how the free market works. I've kind of shelled that out a few different ways on this episode. Uh, Ethan, do you see any other things on con or any holes in what I've been arguing? Um, I Again, there's, there's always going to be the affirmative sort of more feelings-based response. Not that facts can't back it up, but like just like, hey, they're human beings. We should be paying for residents' health care. Like, you can't just deny them health care just because they're not registered on a certain list. Um, but again, the, the negative has such a strong case, or the con, I guess, since it's public forum, um, has such a... You just can't pass up running the solvency argument here. Like, it's, it's like a... Not silver bullet, but it's just so good. Like... How are you going to pay for it? And especially if we're paying for all residents and not just all citizens, that already, like, definitionally speaking, means that there's going to be more withdrawers than payers. So you Which already have that. any insurance system. Okay, yeah, exactly. So unless we're going to save a ton of money in other areas, which is really difficult to prove because that's, you know, trying to predict the future and how, you know, healthcare providers, hospitals, drug companies are going to react to this, it's Neg just can't or Con just can't pass up the opportunity for a really good solvency argument. And the, I mean, I think the Hyde Amendment would be such a cool like thing to include in the case as well. So I like all of that on Con, especially the solvency. And who wouldn't? So one thing to keep in mind here is that we are dealing with a major platform issue for the Democratic Socialist Party, uh, best advocated by Bernie Sanders. 
this is definitively a socialistic program in the sense that uh, even by formal definition where socialism involves the government owning the means of production, that's not exactly what's happening, but the government being the single payer comes really close to that. The problem that socialistic programs have is not a problem of dreams. They're great at dreaming up and even modeling a, a predictive account of how their programs will work. The problem the socialistic programs usually have is a problem of scale. A socialistic program where everyone pays in and is able to get an even share, uh, that works really well for a group of six friends who are splitting dinner. <laughs> When you expand it to 30 people, inevitably you're going to have somebody who forgot his card or forgot his money, and 29 people are paying for 30 people's food. And when you expand that to 300 million Americans or 365 million Americans, we're going to have – this gets infinitely complex. And you require them to pay for everybody who forgot their card. I, now we've got a huge – it just becomes a really big problem. So I would argue that the pro has the rhetorical advantage here. Uh, in that pro has the side that is really easy to, to dream a very clear dream. And pro, your job is to make that dream seem as plausible as possible. So that's where you need to dig down into the stats, the studies, the numbers, show where the current uh, excessive cost in the Medicare medical system are and how this will solve for it. Con, you, have the, you don't have the rhetorical dream of pro, but you have, as Ethan already mentioned, the solvency story. Uh, and if you keep to the evidence and keep to the facts, you should be able to shred everything that pro gets out. Yeah, and really lucky in the rules of public forum, there's no opportunity for a counter plan because you could just nuance any little thing that you wanted to and of this specific bill and get away with murder, essentially. So There, there you go I'm, with more policy language. Just, just saying. Okay, whatever. I'm, do, I'm doing LD. <laughs> so I'm not tired of this resolution. I don't know. Like... If the debate world in general is tired of this resolution, I think it's cool. And the fact that we're talking about a specific bill really just drives it home. I think it was fun to do a, you know, a 42-minute episode about the Medicare, Medicare for All, even though we just, we just talked about it for a few months. I think it's still fun, and there's tons of solvency arguments to be made. There's tons of you know, streamlining, efficiency, saving money arguments to be made. Bring a calculator because you're going to need it unless you're a math genius. Um, which I certainly would need uh, the calculator for no. all the the complexities of the healthcare system. But yeah, this should be a fun one, and I so, I, I really want to hear some feedback about not only this episode but like how these tournaments go, like and what types of arguments people are running because I think that would be so cool. So if you want to email us and give us some feedback on the episode and tell us how your tournament competition went, please do so at what's the res at gmail.com. That's w h a t s t h e r e s at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at what's the res underscore, or you can go to our website. That's www.whatstheres.com. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. <laughs> <laughs>